right now close your eyes and think of a happy place you are about to experience the powershell podcast the podcast for PowerShell and the PowerShell community. The PowerShell podcast is a PDQ production, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick. And now, here's your host, Andrew Plaw. Welcome to the PowerShell podcast. I'm your host, Andrew, back with another episode of your favorite PowerShell weekly podcast. And today on the pre-show, we have some pretty cool blogs and projects to share, starting off with a fantastic blog post by none other than the deadly dog himself, Dan Schroeder, multiple ways to set up your CI/CD pipelines and GitHub actions. Pretty extensive blog post, definitely worth checking out. And he really knows his stuff about GitHub actions. I'll say that. There's also a audit Microsoft 365 admin activity using PowerShell blog by O365 reports which is a pretty helpful PowerShell for Microsoft 360 customers. Uh, some commands you can run to get some insights. Pretty easy if you're in that ecosystem. A cool project from Jordan Borean, which is PSETW, a PowerShell module for capturing ETW events in real time. That's uh, event tracing for Windows. And just in general, want to plug all of the projects on github.com slash deadlydog, our guest of the day, Joining us from Canada, Dan Schroeder. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm uh, I'm psyched to be here. So, I'm glad uh, to hear that. I, I've seen you around. I know you've been listening for a while. I've seen some comments on some things. So it's exciting to have a listener on, get to know you. I haven't met you before. It's kind of our first time. Yeah, it's awesome meeting you like face to face, even though it's online, right? Um, this I have. I've Honestly, I can say I've listened to every single episode of the podcast. I uh, started, you know, in the summer of last year, I had a sabbatical with my work. I was lucky enough to get that and just looking for, you know, something to listen to while I watched the dogs. And so every day I was listening to a new episode of the of the PowerShell podcast. And uh, yeah, it's great. I, I love what you do and for the community and for everything. Yeah. That's great to hear. Um, we're definitely going to cover sort of that journey and maybe some of the messages we shared on the podcast that resonated with you and led to some cool stuff. But first, and, and in this interview, we're going to cover a bunch of stuff. We're going to cover some of your modules. We're going to cover how you as a developer with over two decades of experience, how PowerShell fits into your picture, your perspective in the DevOps SRE platform engineering world, maybe get the take on how things are currently. PowerShell Summit's coming up. Maybe you have a talk. We'll cover that as well and more. But to get started off with, what is this tips module? I've been playing around with it. It's pretty cool. I saw you did some blog posts about it as well. What is this module? Yeah, so the tips module, uh, I made it last summer. Again, listening to your podcast is actually what inspired me to do it. I had that free time on my sabbatical. Like, I want to do some sort of personal project. What should I do? Um, and in general, I just love helping people, creating videos uh, or blog posts, you know, just to help other developers, help people learn. Uh, that's really what I'm passionate about, that and automating things. And so I thought, yeah, let's create a PowerShell module to help people learn PowerShell. And so what it is, uh, you just install the module on your machine, and then you can have it every day, you can have it give you a new PowerShell tip. Uh, so it could be something about, you know, maybe a VS Code setting that will like make you more productive with PowerShell, uh, something about the syntax, maybe things, you know, like if you're doing a null check, you should have, you know, if instead of saying if variable x equals null, you should have the null on the left and say, 
if null equals x, that type of thing. Um, yeah, there's just lots of lots of tips that I've that I've found useful uh, that I thought other people, especially learning PowerShell, would find useful. Um, but even myself, I've been using PowerShell since ooh, I don't know 2012. It was like right when it was transitioning. Uh, PowerShell three had just come out. That's when I got into PowerShell, and I've been you know learning things along the way. But even through all that time, I'm still learning stuff all the time, uh, new stuff that you know not only the new stuff that's in PowerShell seven. Uh, but even stuff that was just old that I hadn't known about. Uh, and so that's what this module was really for. It's just to, you know, give people those quick tips and everything on, on how to, you know, use PowerShell better, more effectively, be more productive with it. Um, yeah. And so, like, it has commands. You can say, like, get uh, dash PowerShell tip. It'll give you a PowerShell tip on demand. If you want, you can set it to automatically show a PowerShell tip every time you open your PowerShell prompt. Um, or like I said, you can set it up to give you a new tip daily or weekly. And so, you know, if you have it showing you a new tip every time you start your prompt, it might be a little intrusive, right? So some people might just want to learn one new thing a week. It's a nice, easy, relaxed, slower pace just to learn new tips without you having to explicitly go out and look for new things, right? They come to you instead of you having to go find them. Um, exactly. And one thing you've probably heard us say on the podcast before is, you know, recommending people check out, you know, maybe add this to your profile, get a random help article or this and that. And this sort of is like that, but improved a little bit and more organized, I would say. It's still good to read help topics, but from what I've seen these tips, that's often kind of highlighting a feature or something like that and giving you some links to follow up on it that is actually pretty helpful. I got some stuff about the new operators in PowerShell 7 that I'm not taking full advantage of. Um, so definitely a cool module for people of all different skill levels. You will learn something cool there and check out the project. I think you have some good resources if people are interested in contributing and kind of getting started. Maybe this is their entry point into their first contribution. Yeah, for sure. It's all open source on GitHub. Uh, so it's all free and everything. I have a video showing how you can contribute to the project. Uh, so you don't even need to clone it to your local machine if you don't want. You can just use uh, GitHub code spaces and that's what the, the video shows how to do. Open it up in GitHub code spaces, uh, contribute your, your tip, open the pull request. It goes through the whole flow on how to do that. Um, and you mentioned too, like, uh, just like a lot of the tips. I'll, I'll, again, another shout out to the podcast, the PowerShell podcast. A lot of the tips that I that are in there are stuff while I was listening to the podcast on my walk. I would be like, oh, I didn't know that. That's a really good tip. Or, oh, I got to check that module out. So I just pull out my phone, make a quick little note. Uh, and then that's the stuff that's been ending up in the PowerShell tips module. Um, but yes, thank you. I would love more people to contribute to that. I don't want it to just be Dan's PowerShell tips. I, it's really built and meant to be a community thing. Um, and I was actually super surprised. Um, when I originally made the module, I hadn't like tweeted about it or advertised it or anything at all. And I actually had two people open up pull requests to submit tips. And I was like, whoa, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, since then though, I haven't had so many. And so I'm really hoping, you know, uh, people listening to the podcast can can go check out the tips module um, and yeah, contribute to it because there's, you know, everybody has their own uh, their own take on things and things that they find maybe important or helpful that other people might not. And so I don't want it to be just my perspective. I want it to be the community at large. So, yeah. That is very exciting. I'm blushing over here. I didn't know that I was kind of setting myself up to be like, oh, I heard about it on the PowerShell podcast. But no, this is really cool. I'm glad kind of disappointed in myself for not plugging this sooner, given that, you know, the kind of origins of it all, but I'm glad we have a nice highlight here. And if you end up do 
if you do contribute to this, hit us up at powershellpdq.com and we'll send some swag your way to incentivize a little bit of extra open source contribution out here. But yeah, add it to your profile. You can install it really quickly. There's even a command to add uh, importing the module to your profile and some other helpful commands there. So check it out. There's even a blog on the topic on your blog, which is blog.danskingdom.com, which I will also have a link to in the show notes. So when did you start blogging? Is that a new thing? I want to hear about this story. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, like I've been writing software for over 20 years. Um, I, I, you know, went to university here in Regina, Saskatchewan. That's where I'm from, uh, up in Canada. And I graduated with my master's in 2009. And then I got my, my full-time job at my, my company. I've, I'm still at, it's called IQ metrics. So I've been there about 15 years now. Um, and I started blogging, you know, once a couple of years after I started there. And originally I was just blogging on like an internal company blog that I started, but I thought I'm like, you know, all the stuff that I'm writing, it's not really specific to my company. Anybody could benefit from this. And so that was back in around 2010. And I think it was 2011 is when I decided, you know what, I'm going to start writing stuff on my own personal blog. Uh, so I opened up a, a blog for free on geeks with blog. Yeah, geekswithblogs.net, I believe is what it used to be called. I'm not sure if they're still around or not. Um, and so I blogged there for a couple of years. Um, I wasn't super happy with that platform. Like it was really good and especially just for getting started. Um, but shortly after, you know, I wanted some things like I couldn't see, you know, view stats and all these other things that I wanted to know. And so I moved over to WordPress around 2013 or 2014, something like that. Um, and it was just hosted with GoDaddy. It was nice and simple. Uh, at least at first. And that was cool because you got all these plugins that'll give you metrics and stuff. And you can see, you know, your top favorited posts and all the, these cool things. Um, but then a few years down the road, uh, you know, WordPress is updated all the time. And I found there is like an automatically update WordPress button to get all the security fixes. But I found it worked maybe 50% of the time. And the other times it would just break and I couldn't update. And then I'd be manually like downloading the source code files and having to FTP them over to get updated to the latest version. It just was not a good experience. Um, and the other thing also is uh, there's an excellent um, blogger, YouTuber, TikToker, everything um, that you might know it for the .NET platform or just for Microsoft called Scott Hanselman. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So you might know of Scott Hanselman. He's a kind of a pretty big deal in the Microsoft world. Um, but he, one of his things was, you know, you want to make sure you own your content. And so, you know, getting started, if you're just getting started with a blog, I would say go to something like dev.to or something where it's just easy to get up and running quickly. Um, but uh, if you don't, you know, if that website goes out of business or they go away, you don't necessarily have your content anymore, right? All that, you know, blood, sweat, and tears that you put into making those posts are now just gone. Um, so, uh, that sort of along with just how much of a headache it was updating WordPress all the time uh, had me move over to just using, now I use GitHub pages, which is completely free um, with Jekyll, which basically uh, I write all my posts in Markdown, it converts into HTML and then it's hosted on GitHub pages for free. And so that way everything's in Git, uh, it's under source control, it's all version control, they can roll back really easy if I need to. Um, Hooking up comments was a little bit tougher. I had to use something called Static Man, but all that information is actually on my blog as well. So again, my blog itself is open source on GitHub. If you want to see how it works, you can actually go there. Um, and I have, uh, you know, a README for myself 
about like what I did to get there and all the customizations I've made. Um, but it's also super help, super helpful for other people um, if they're wondering, you know, how did he do that? What exactly did he change? Uh, you know, the commit history is all in Git, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, that's sort of you know how I got to where I am with my blog today. But uh, really, though, I I do blog mostly like I do blog to help people, but it's also for myself because a lot of the times you couldn't believe how many times you go blogging or go searching for something on the internet. And then you find an answer or a blog post that you wrote years ago, and you're like, oh, I totally forgot about that. That's right. Um, and it's kind of a running joke um, at my office as well, is lots of people, they're doing the same thing, right? They're just searching for some problem, trying to solve it, and they run across my blog or an answer I put on Stack Overflow, and they shoot me a message on Slack, being like, hey, Dan, look what I found today. Um, and so, like, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't say blog for others. You should, I do it for myself, at least. For me, uh, blogging is just something that I'm, I like to do. I'm passionate about it. I like sharing my journey and what I've learned with other people. Um, and then, like I said, also, I come back around because I can't remember what I did six months ago sometimes. And so if you blog about it, you know, you might have to come back to it in a year and you have your, your steps to do it. It's just one of those things where it's the right choice any way you look at it, pretty much, especially if you don't put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, to actually do it. If you're just documenting kind of what you're doing, making it for yourself and presenting it in a way, you have the benefit of being able to like use that one bit of effort for yourself in the future. But also who knows who it helps and who it perhaps inspires to start their own blog and then goes down the chain. And it's definitely the right thing to do. And GitHub pages is a fantastic way to start. It's a great way to get experience with GitHub as well and kind of PRs and all that in a safe way where you get an interactive element or sort, you know, you get your web page at the end, something kind of cool to reward your efforts of figuring out how to use GitHub pages, um, which isn't too challenging. Yeah, I love what you called out there, is just make it low stress, low pressure. That's the key thing, right? Uh, my first few blog posts, they were all like one minute reads, just really quick stuff, right? Just a quick note for myself, essentially. I'm just writing this down, throwing it somewhere. Hey, it just happens to be out in the public forum. Um, so, which is awesome. I still do a lot of those from time to time, but like sometimes I also do have longer blog posts. I think my last one I started like just before Halloween and I just wrapped it up this weekend. So it was like a two month long thing. Uh, so don't put pressure and stress on yourself. You don't need to do that. It can just be a quick, you know, five, 10 minute thing that you just jot off and just have it out there because other people will find it useful. Exactly. Make it easy for yourself. Don't make it too challenging. And once you get in the flow of things, you can take off more, but it's like building that brick wall, just one brick at a time, one small challenge, and, and you'll do some pretty amazing things as time goes on, which I feel like is something that I see in a lot of our guests. It's like they've done really cool stuff. Their GitHub has a ton of projects, and like your blog has all these posts, but it's just one at a time, just over time doing things in the right way. And as you keep going throughout your career and learning new things and sharing new things, you amass this pretty big database of knowledge and lessons to share. Yep. So if you're listening, now's a great time to get started on your blog. And I even thinking about it, you can do it. You can even DM me or I bet Deadly Dog would be interested in, in giving you some feedback or giving being a sounding board for ideas, a little sanity check. Feel free to hit us up and get started. For sure. Well, 20 years developing. So I love talking to developers because it's always interesting to see where they found PowerShell and what they use it for and what about it interests them. Uh, because I know there's a lot of great languages out there and I'm sure PowerShell isn't your exclusive one or you know you must have had experiences with other ones before, but where did you find PowerShell and where did you start getting interested in it? 
Yeah, so uh, I first got introduced to PowerShell when I was looking to automate our build and deployment systems, you know, um, doing CI/CD, DevOps type of stuff. Um, so this was back in like 2011, probably. Um, and, you know, I think the term DevOps was out there, but I hadn't heard of it. And so I just sort of became the DevOps guy at our at our office, which, you know, I know that's wrong to say that <laughs> um, people think DevOps just means CI/CD. It's actually much more. Maybe get into that later. Um, but anyways, I got known as, you know, the build and deployment guy uh, for our, our flagship product. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we were deploying uh, it's a monolithic application written, you know, uh, C sharp WPF um, using WCF. Uh, but yeah, we're deploying it to virtual machines in our data centers. And so uh, that's where we sort of found that we, we could leverage PowerShell. I guess I first got into it just building to make developers' lives easier. Everyone before used to just open up Visual Studio, hit F5 to build and run. Um, but we found, you know, the application's huge. It would take 10 minutes to build. And so we found a better way is like, I'm going to make some scripts that you can build. You don't actually have to open up Visual Studio. You can just double click this file. It'll build everything. Uh, so, you know, we wrote the whole build system out uh, with, with PowerShell. Uh, but then getting into the deployments is really where PowerShell shined, where we had to deploy these applications to IIS. And it wasn't just like one or two websites. It was deploying like 20 different services uh, to, you know, maybe 50, 80 different virtual machines. And so, um, yeah, that's that's really when I got into to PowerShell and fell in love with it. Um, okay. That's an interesting time. So DevOps was a big movement. And how did that, like, I know PowerShell, you were doing deployments and CICD, and those things are kind of related. How did that all tie together? Because I know it probably wasn't just you hearing about DevOps. It was kind of an industry-wide sort of thing that was happening. Yeah, it, it totally was. But again, I didn't know about it until like years after we had sort of started down that road, like the term DevOps, right? Um, yeah, we basically, like, it, we... It wasn't anything that we necessarily heard about even from the industry. It was just pain that we felt internally. And we're like, there has to be an easier way. I'm a developer. I automate things. Let me automate this is really how it came about. So it came about very organically and naturally. Um, you know, we, we were using a build system. Uh, we were using TFS back then, Team Foundation Server, which is, you know, gone through a few different names. It used to be Visual Studio Online. Now it's Azure DevOps. Um, but it was very painful back then when we did it. You had to use Windows Workflow, which is like a drag and drop visual editor. And using that to build your, your build and deployment system was very painful. And so, you know, moving over to PowerShell, uh, which is something where I can write code, I can test it, you know, I can just run it on my local machine to test things out if I need. Uh, all these things was, was a much better, smoother process. What elements of PowerShell did you like? Did you like the verbose nature? Did you like that it was, you know, kind of meant for Microsoft services initially and kind of worked well with them. What elements kind of keep you coming back? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I love how easy it is to read and write because uh, we did have some other scripts written in like Ruby. And Ruby is very hard to, like if you don't know the syntax or the language, if you've never seen it before, it's very hard to know what's going on, right? Whereas PowerShell, assuming you're not using aliases all over the place, you're using the full commandlet names. Uh, it's very easy to read, very easy to write. Um, I was a C-sharp developer and C++ before that. But uh, so the whole .NET ecosystem, I already knew. And you can leverage all of the .NET framework uh, in PowerShell. I really loved that. So even if I didn't know like 
what's the PowerShell way to do this? Like open a file and read it. I knew the C-sharp way to do that. And I knew I could just call those same functions. Um, and so it was just, it was a very easy transition because of that, right? So Nice. So you're sort of in the ecosystem already and it's pretty decent shell and readable and all that other stuff. So kind of makes sense. But now you're you're still kind of playing in it so many years later. Um, are you, what type of stuff are you doing these days? I know you mentioned some platform engineering. Are you still in the pipeline world? Uh, yep. So for ooh, probably three or four years, I led a team of DevOps developers. We were actually called the pipeline specialists where, uh, you know, so <laughs> with DevOps, the whole DevOps movement, I guess we could get into it now. Uh, but with DevOps, um, it came about because developers used to write code and then they would throw it over the wall for ops to go actually deploy it and run it in production, right? Um, and then DevOps was saying, hey, let's get rid of that wall. And developers, you're now going to own your code all the way from you know uh, building the requirements, writing it, testing it, doing QA on it, and also deploying it, running it, monitoring it in production, right? And so now we had developers uh, writing their own build and deployment pipelines where before that they would have just you know emailed our... Um, our SRE folks or our, our server admin folks being like, hey, here's a zip of the files. Can you go you know, copy paste these onto the servers to deploy the new version, right? Very manual, very slow, very painful, very error prone. Uh, you don't want to be doing that, right? And so uh, when we said, you know, we want to move over to this new DevOps model where, uh, where teams are responsible for deploying their own software, running it, you know, they're fully responsible for it. Um, a lot of developers had never looked at, you know, deploying something to a server before. It was a whole new, like, paradigm that they had to learn. So, you know, there's a, a whole lot of things that come with running your software. Now you need to be concerned with, you know, how many servers is it running on? Maybe firewall rules. How do I actually get the code copied from, you know, uh, the build server onto those machines? And so uh, PowerShell, that's where PowerShell really shines, is its ability to uh, do remote sessions. So you can, uh, you know, copy all the files over. You can set up IIS, configure it all with PowerShell, uh, all really easily. And what I really love about it too is you can actually do all the commands on your local machine, on your local IIS, and then you can just, you know, put that in a script block and then say invoke command and specify the server that you want to run the commands on, and it should should run the exact same way on the servers, you know, depending on, you know, which operating system version you have and the version of IIS and, and things like that. But um, yeah, that's where it really shined for us is, is is with the deployment system to all of our virtual machines. So. so you're pretty deep into things now. I know you mentioned some Kubernetes earlier in your little thing you sent me. Yeah. How do you feel about the current tools that we have? You know, I know you mentioned uh, VS Code or GitHub Code workspaces or whatever, where you just press period. And I know VS Code's pretty sweet. PowerShell's awesome. How do you feel about it, though? Does it feel like things are in a good state or does it feel kind of like always, where there's new tools being developed and they sort of work for now, but maybe they don't fully cover the whole problem and they introduce new ones? What's it like? Um, so I can only give you my perspective, as you mentioned, and as I mentioned, I've been at the same company for 15 years, just because they're an amazing, uh, wonderful company. They've given me tons of opportunities. I get to work with new technologies. And, you know, so I mentioned we deploy IIS or deploy uh, web applications to IIS. We do do that to on-prem servers. We also have VMs in Azure, but we also have, you know, Azure uh, native things. We're using app services, Azure functions all that type of thing. We're using Kubernetes in Azure. Um, and for that, we're using uh, 
Git ops. So we just have a Git repository that sort of defines all of your Helm charts and there's all, you know, there's a bunch of things to Kubernetes. It's that in itself would be a whole talk to learn about. Um, but so at my experience is there's a whole bunch of tools or a whole bunch of different things. You might use them all <laughs> at the same time, you know, for different purposes. Uh, the tools, I, I do feel like they are getting better. You know, GitOps wasn't a thing, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, and I, I really like where that's moving. Um, and Kubernetes in general is just really nice because, you know, with Kubernetes, you get Docker. And before you used to have to worry about well, what type of application is this? Is it, you know, a Python app or is it a C-sharp web app? Is it a Windows service? Is it, what is this thing, right? Docker sort of abstracts all that away, at least in terms of the deployment. Uh, so for deploying the thing, it's just always the same with a Docker container, right? So you say, I have this Docker container, you run docker.run or whatever the, the, the command is, um, and it'll just get it running in Kubernetes or, uh, you know, there's Azure container services as well if you want to run it there. So I don't know if I would say the tools are converging. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different players um, and things are getting better. And it just sort of depends, I guess, who you go with, what you pick. So, yeah. Yeah. I like what you said about GitOps though. I guess I sort of take it for granted how new of a thing that is. And GitOps is, I guess, basically just basing things around committing things to Git, right? Yeah. So you, traditionally, you would commit stuff into your Git repository, and then some deployment pipeline kicks off, like GitHub Action or something like that. GitOps sort of reverses that uh, dependency. So you have something watching the Git repository. And so when something in the Git repository changes, it says, hey, does what I have actually running in production match what's in the Git repository? No? OK, let me go update uh, the production environment to match what's in the Git repository. So. And and I think part of approving PRs and code, you can do all kinds of testing. And I know you have some experience with GitHub Actions in particular, which is what's on GitHub, um, which is kind of a cool way to start doing things like that and further automating and kind of, I think that it helps um, to be able to conceptualize the system that you're working with to kind of think about it that, oh, it's just this Git repository here and everything kind of comes from that. Yes. And everything's version controlled. If you mess something up, you just revert that commit and you're back to where you were, right? So so you've had a lot of different roles and you kind of mentioned you were there before DevOps and a lot of things have changed for you to be using Kubernetes and all these other technologies that you're currently using. Um, how hard is it or has it been a thing you've had to work on how you can like view the whole system that you're working on, right? So you have code that's committed, you have actions that run, all these different steps of a process. I imagine with your experience now, you have a bit of a better grasp mentally, but is that something that's like developed over time? Because I, I can imagine someone newer to this would be maybe overwhelmed by thinking of like all the moving pieces, but how is it for you? Yeah, it's, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. Um, and like, because where I am, like the, the company has been running since like 1999. So we have, and the flagship product is still from, you know, back in the early 2000s, it's a monolith. Um, and so like a monolith just means it's one big thing deployed all together at once, right? And so like conceptualizing that itself isn't too hard. Uh, but then, you know, around 2010 or so, we started getting into microservices was the new buzzword, right? And so we also have a whole bunch of microservices all over the place. Um, and, you know, each of those are built and deployed independently. Uh, they need to talk to each other. Um, you might not always know 
you know, which ones depend on which other ones. So getting that dependency graph can definitely be uh, a little troublesome. Like if you're a dev team, you might not even know all of the other internal services that rely on your team or what you might break if you deploy a change. Uh, there's tools out there that can, you know, visualize that and find those dependency graphs and whatnot. Um, but it's definitely hard. And especially for a newer developer, like you mentioned, to sort of hold all that in their mind at one time and conceptualize what that looks like, it's very hard. Um, so I, I don't really have a good answer for you there. I think it just, it comes with time. You just, you need need experience. And even, you, it, it's experience with the business too, right? Because I could, you know, we do microservices here. I could go to a different company that does microservices and they might do it completely different. and the microservices they have are going to be completely different, right? And so even though I sort of know how everything works, um, it could still be a lot to take in and learn. You might still need months and months to, to really grasp it all. Yeah, that's a good tip. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, be patient with yourself. Don't give up. If you have tools to visualize things, try and visualize it if you can, kind of make it make some form of sense. Um, but I think that overwhelmed feeling is is pretty common and it's okay to kind of push through that and experience some of that. You learn a lot, I've found, in those times when you're like really confused but not giving up. Any advice you'd have for someone just getting started in that space? Um, I would say, like like you said, be patient with yourself. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Because um, like, like I said, I've led a team before. I tell the guys, or I would tell them, my team, not guys, girls too, um, but I would tell them, you know, I like you to try and struggle with a problem for a little bit, because when you struggle with a problem, that's oftentimes when you really learn, especially if you're able to figure it out, that's when you get that aha moment and things really click for you. But I don't want you to waste like two days on something that you could just ask someone about, right? So, uh, you know, depending on what the problem is, context is always important, but maybe spend an hour or two uh, working with it yourself. Um, Especially if it's something that's like an industry standard or a technology that you can just go Google and learn about and figure out yourself, right? If it's some internal tool or something like that that you know nothing about, you know, you just go ask someone right away. That'll be much, much quicker. Don't waste your time. Um, but yeah, so I would just say, don't be afraid to, to ask for help, um, but always do try and figure it out. That shouldn't be your first thing is asking for help. You should try it and figure it out a little bit yourself first and then go ask for help. So yeah, and I think having a team that, allows you to ask questions, but also, you know, hires people who are curious enough and encourages them to, to kind of search them for themselves as a great environment to be in. Um, I see you have some certs. You got your Azure certs going on. If someone's trying to get started, should they be doing projects? Should they follow the cert? Do you think it's a, I know Microsoft has put a lot of effort into their certs and making them relevant and helpful. What was your experience? Would you recommend it to someone trying to up their skills? Uh, yeah, for sure. The certificates, like the certificate itself, I, it might look good on your resume. It might help you get in the door. I'm not sure. It depends where you apply to. Um, but it was the the studying for the certificates and the going through the modules. Um, like it, it, I would say it's it could be tough if you never if you haven't done anything with it before. Depending on which level, if you're just doing the 100 or 101 level certificates, you know you could probably get by with just reading the Microsoft modules, uh, learn modules that they have online. But some of the deeper ones, you're probably better off. You're going to need to have some experience with it. But um, what I found really helpful was it made me learn about a lot of the different technologies. Like my certificates are all with Azure. So it helped me learn about the different Azure technologies that I hadn't used yet. And just to be aware of them, what problems they solve, you know, what they're for. 
And so when I encountered other issues at work where we have like, oh, we have this problem, then now I have a few different uh, uh, tools in my tool belt that I can leverage. I'm like, oh yeah, and I know about this thing. I've heard about that, right? I know about whatever it is, Azure SQL databases or Event Hub, or, you know, there's tons of different things. Azure has, you know, a hundred plus services. It's really hard to know them all, but just even having that sort of surface level knowledge that they exist and kind of what they do. So when you do run into a problem, you're like, ah, I know there's something, something for this. Let me go research it further, right? And so that's what I found really helpful about doing the certificates. Uh, so like I did the deep dive on the stuff that I knew really well, which was like, Azure DevOps, uh, CI/CD pipelines, GitHub, GitHub Actions, that type of thing. Um, but sort of like when you go to university, right? You choose uh, your specialty, but there's also all these electives, and it's sort of learning about all the other stuff that's also in the ecosystem. I found that very, very valuable. Nice. Yeah, I think that's always helpful when you can sort of start to paint the picture of like everything that you're going to be dealing with, even if it's not fully colored in. You have some sketch outlines you can go back to later if you encounter a problem or for further research. So interesting. That's a plus one to the certificates because I think there was a pretty bad rap for a while um, with certs, but I think Microsoft has really put more effort into making them relevant, helpful, and sort of part of the plan for teaching people about Azure. Yeah, I'll maybe say like, you're gonna get out of it what you put in. So yeah. if you're just, you know, you can buy practice exams, I think, online, and there's some free ones. And if that's all you're doing, you're not actually like learning the content, you know, you're just getting it to check a box, like, okay, whatever, right? But like I said, if, if you, it was actually putting the time in to learn about things that I otherwise I wouldn't have put the time in to learn it, right? And it has turned out to be really helpful and useful uh, at my work. So for me, that's that's what it was all about. Nice. It kind of gives you a curriculum to go through and if you don't know where you want to go and learn, it gives you something to kind of focus on. But you definitely don't want to be forced into it because I've had to do those certs before and it's you don't get as much out of it. But you, again, with the whole, you have a bunch of different experience, different job titles, DevOps, SRE, platform engineer. What do these names mean? Do they mean anything? Is it just what companies choose to call the role or is there actually a difference? What job title are we going to settle on here? Yeah, for sure. Um... So, like I said, I've worked at one company so far for my professional career, so I can't give you, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, don't take it as like the industry standard. Um, so, like what, what DevOps means to me was, like I said, it was removing that barrier between the dev team and the operations team uh, and having the dev teams really own their systems, or their services, their applications, all the way to production. Not just saying, okay, here operations team, go deploy this. You watch all the error logs, and if there's alerts, you guys, you know, scale up the the servers or whatever. Right? It's having developers aware of how their application is running in production. Like, oh, CPU is running high. Maybe we should go fix that in our application. So that's not a problem, right? Um, whereas that that wall before prevented a lot of that that stuff. Um, so to me, that's DevOps. It's the whole life cycle: a dev team owning their service, the whole thing. Uh, to me, SRE, Site Reliability Engineering, uh, that one means keeping, it's more infrastructure related, keeping the infrastructure uh, healthy. And so like, it, it's still, you know, watching application logs uh, of, you know, the applications that are running in production uh, and you might be getting paged. And it's for, for me, it's for dealing with, you know, 
like I said, infrastructure concerns that the dev teams maybe wouldn't know how to deal with right away. So things like scaling out, if you need more instances or scaling up, maybe you need to, you have virtual machines, you need to grow them from four gigs of memory to eight gigs of memory, doing things like that. Uh, it's also having high availability and redundancy. So, you know, deploying things to multiple regions, making sure uh, it can fail, fail over if one region goes down. Uh, so disaster recovery, doing things like taking backups, uh, all that type of stuff. And, you know, there is some manual work there sometimes, but, you know, the job of SRE is to automate all that stuff. You should have, you know, your early warning detection systems in there saying, you know, this server is running high on CPU, maybe it's time to scale it out. And even developers uh, could, could do those rules, especially in something like Azure, where, you know, the Azure portal um, or using infrastructure as code, uh, you know, developers can configure a lot of those rules themselves. But there's there's some things where um, the SRE team just might, it might make more sense for them to do things like networking issues, firewalls, things like that, that developers uh, might not know about or things that scale multiple applications, right? It's not owned by a single de dev team. If I have an F5 load balancer in front of our data centers and there's an issue with that, that's not something I would expect a dev team to go deal with, right? Because uh, they know nothing about it. So that's SRE um, and platform engineering. So platform engineering is the new kid on the block. Uh, it's uh, essentially to me, platform engineering is making deploying those applications easy for developers, giving them a system. So I sort of mentioned that uh, with you know when DevOps came about, now dev teams all had to learn how to build and deploy their systems to production. And every team has to learn that same lesson over and over. And a new team member joins the team. Oh, now they have to learn about the pipelines and they have to learn about how the deployments work. And there's a lot of intricacies in there. There's a lot of details. There's a lot of things to overlook. Um, doing things like blue-green deployments so that you have, don't have any downtime. Doing things like canary releases, you know, so you just for, uh, release, you know, or so you test out the application, you know, maybe you have 1% or 5% of traffic going to the new version and you see how it performs there before you update all of the instances to the new version. Things like that, right, that are easy to overlook. Um, that's where I see the platform engineering coming into play where they build out a platform that's easy for developers to use. And so the developers no longer have to sort of worry about how do I do a blue-green deployment? How do I do a canary release, right? They just, you know, say, uh, hey system, here's my Docker container image. This is the version it should be using. Go make it happen. And you know that platform, the system that the platform engineering team has built out, takes it and deploys it to production in a safe way with zero downtime, right? And so, um, of course, you know where you work, you might not have all three groups. It really depends on how big your company is. Um, and if you're like a smaller company, you might have just, you might be the one person doing all three of those roles, right? Uh, so it really depends, but that's sort of my take on those three, those three roles. I guess this whole developing software thing is a pretty complex problem. <laughs> Takes a, a few different roles, different titles, but uh, we have to do what we have to do to deliver software and try and make it as easily as possible. Now, I want to hear about Summit. Because you sent me a, a nice little Twitter message about how you got accepted to talk. So I want to hear about that process because I think you said you did some talking at your company before, but never have done more of a big public sort of speech. Yeah. So I'm super excited. Um, again, 
credit to your show because it was you guys listening and promoting the PowerShell Summit is where I even heard about it. And you were encouraging the, the audience to go submit a talk. And I'm like, you know what? I will. And so I submitted two talks. Only one got accept accepted, but I'm super happy about that. Um, and yeah, so my talk is going to be on uh, deploying your PowerShell modules using GitHub Actions. And it's a 45-minute session. I'm super psyched. I've given a lot of presentations at my office. Um, you know, I've done company-wide presentations, you know, 300-plus employees on things like Azure Pipelines and Azure DevOps. So it's not totally foreign to me, but this is my first time doing, you know, public speaking outside of my office or outside of my work. And so uh, I did, I do have a bit of anxiety about it. I'm not going to lie, um, but I'm just sort of forcing myself, even coming on this podcast, I've never done a podcast before, but I said, you know, I, I wanted to start going outside of my comfort zone a little bit. Um, just that's how you learn. That's how you grow. Right. And to see if this is something that I enjoy doing, because I really do like creating content. And I've wondered, you know, do I want to be a content creator full time? I don't think I do. But like maybe I'll enjoy giving uh, presentations or putting on talks, that type of thing. And you really you don't know until you start trying it. And so that's this is just sort of me pushing myself to, to get outside my comfort zone a bit. That's great to hear. And, you know, we always learn a bit about ourselves throughout the whole journey. And I, I definitely can relate to being a little bit nervous, but, you know, just put in the time and the effort and it'll all work out in the end. Um, very excited to hear that, though. And I appreciate the honesty about the nerves because uh, that is definitely a part of it is kind of dealing with that and getting through it and realizing, oh, it wasn't too bad. Maybe I could do it again. Or maybe it was really stressful and you choose not to. Um, that's what I was like whenever I wrote a chapter in the PowerShell conference book. Writing isn't for me, probably, when it comes to books. Yeah, there's just certain things. And like now you know, though, right? Now you you tried it once. Now you know that's not for me. Um, and that's that's what I'm looking to get out of it. Because like I, like I said, I do enjoy speaking, uh, especially about things I'm passionate about, like PowerShell, automation, productivity, the tools, all that sort of stuff. I love that. Good. I love those topics as well. Um, PowerShell is, is what I love. Um, but speaking about it can be a bit of a different thing. And it's cool that you found things that you have an area of expertise in and are willing to share with us. That is what it's all about. Um, talks is one way, blogs is another way, videos, whatever you got, it is always welcome in the PowerShell community. Now, Dan, one quick little topic I wanted to cover was the work from home life. Because I think a lot of us, and you were telling me earlier that you were one of these where things kind of changed. People went to full remote. Some companies tried doing back in office. Some didn't. How has that been for you? How's that adjustment been? Yeah. So uh, it's been interesting for me. Uh, so for context, we were full in the office up until COVID hit. So that was, you know, I guess 10, 11 years for me uh, professionally. And then COVID hit and everyone was work from home. And, you know, we're lucky enough to be in a position where we could work from home. A lot of different professions couldn't, right? Um, but then after COVID sort of settled down and we, people were able to go back to the office, um, we, we have a really great company and they, like, they trust employees and they really do look out for us. And they, they said, you know, we understand not everyone's comfortable coming back to the office. Uh, and so they just wanted to take it slowly. And we were just doing back in the office one day a week. Um, and so, you know, you were encouraged to come. Uh, it was it was really nice uh, getting to see everyone, especially after you know two three years. Um, and so I I personally I do love working from home. Um, 
you know, you don't have to deal with the commute, especially in the winters, driving through the snow, mm. uh, all that type of stuff. I can just, you know, get up and be ready for work in five minutes. Um, so I like that aspect of it, but I definitely do miss some of the people aspect, you know, just seeing those people. Cause there's a lot of people in the office that I just, you don't talk to anymore. So you don't randomly bump into them in the hallway or by the water, by the water cooler or getting a coffee anymore. Right. Um, in our office, especially, we would do things like uh, we would go play soccer together in the parks one or two days a week over lunchtime. And so I miss, you know, just hanging out, building those relationships with the coworker, coworkers. So I'm lucky enough that I was an employee there for a long time. I had a lot of those relationships already. But for people who just started around COVID, like I imagine it's a much different a working environment or it feels like a different workplace than what I have, right? Because they haven't had to, haven't gotten to have all of those in-person uh, connections and build them the same way that people pre-COVID got to. So, Yeah. Um, where I work, we do a thing where we, and it's actually the week that this episode goes out. So I will be in Salt Lake City with the whole company forming those kind of in-person connections that are honestly so helpful for collaboration and for just sharing knowledge and working together. It's very helpful to have some form of personal connection outside of just seeing their name on Slack or Teams or, or what have you. Um, so definitely looking forward to those. That's part of why. And I'm curious to see what you say after experiencing Summit. But Summit is another one of those events that just really charges you up and kind of for my meter of like my people meter, it, it fills me up for a couple months of like, hey, I know I belong. These are my people. I can contribute more and do things like that. Yeah. But then you definitely need downtime after. I, I can definitely relate to that. I think a lot of us are introverts, but uh, like I love being around people, but yeah, I can't do it for a long, long period of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I think one last thing I'll say just on the work from home um, is I think, it, like I said, I really do enjoy it. I really loved it. I think it's going to be a lot harder for any new uh, developers or IT or people coming in into the profession uh, just because there's so much you learn just by watching over somebody's shoulder, right. And just having those informal conversations. So even just, you know, someone in PowerShell, you might, they might use a keyboard shortcut and you go, Hey, what was that? How did you do that? Right. You don't get to see a lot of that stuff. Even if you're pair programming uh, virtually, just a lot of that stuff gets lost. Right. Um, and you have to make the conscious effort to pair program virtually, which is really, which is really tough um, to do. So, I'll maybe mention one thing my team my team did do my the pipeline specialist team back when COVID did hit there was five of us and we would just have a Zoom call open all day long that we were on but we would have the cameras turned off the microphones turned off or muted you're not obligated to be at your desk but if you had a question you could just unmute and go like hey Kyle what do you think about this or hey can you take a look at this and if they're not there that's totally fine uh, but then a lot of the times other people would hear that too because the whole team might be on the call and be like, Oh, I encountered that last week. This is how I dealt with it. Or, you know, and the, you know, just random conversations start up, not even work related stuff. And so it did help build camaraderie even over the virtual setting. So yep. I had a similar experience with my previous team where we would do that. We would just join discord. Occasionally people would collaborate on a problem. And usually I would just kind of half listen and just sort of reminded me of the office again. And, you know, sometimes you learn little things, you maybe mention something that leads to something helpful. Um, it's definitely nice. It, it opens up an avenue for small talk. 
Yeah, I know not everyone's comfortable with that, right? Lots of people don't want to be on a call all day, and that's totally understandable. So it worked for us. I just yeah. thought I'd admit it might work for your team. Maybe not. So Yeah, even just maybe an hour a day. It's like, hey, it's open office hours. If anybody wants to come by and hang out, we can work. We can not work. Whatever works for your environment. Awesome. Well, Dan, we're coming up at the end here. And I like to end with some questions. And you know what? I sent you a list of three common parameters. And I did that in the episode with Mike Kanekos, and I was called out. Apparently, at some point in time last year, I said this year I was going to do some uncommon parameters and switch up the questions. So you came prepared for some questions, and I'm going to, last minute, completely change them on you. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I could say anything. I could ask anything. Um, maybe I'll give you a, a little amendment to what we said earlier and just kind of give you a, a different take on these questions. So we'll start off with this one. I just want to ask the same ones as before. What's your number one module other than the tips module that you would recommend to somebody? Just one. I know it's way harder than three. I'm conflicted here because like I said, I've listened to this show forever and I know the modules that have been mentioned a bunch and like, I want to mention those, but that doesn't really give the viewers or the audience anything new, right? Go zany. Um, yeah. I'm going to mention all three. I don't care about your question. So fair, fair. <laughs> I'd say it's like one of the best ones that I would say is profiler. I, I heard about it on the show. I used that to profile my tips module. Um, it's, it was super helpful because the tips is maybe unique in that I wanted to add it to the user profile. So it starts up every time. And when I initially wrote it, it was like four seconds to start up. And nobody wants to have, you know, be waiting four seconds for your terminal to actually let you be able to type in it every time you open it, right? And so I ran Profiler, though. It showed me where the problem was. And I got it down to like 100 milliseconds, something like that. So it was super useful. Um, and I'm just going to say them because I've been prepping. Andrew. I know. I shouldn't have done that to you, man. That's my bad. I've been thinking about these. Uh, another one that I'm pretty positive no one has ever mentioned, because maybe it's not a real module. It's not on the gallery but is the web administration module. So the web administration module is used for configuring IIS on servers, and it's a Windows server feature. So you typically you go into the Windows server options and install it from there. It, I'm not sure if it's available on the gallery, but no one's mentioned that one, so I thought I would. Um, and then another all-time favorite is import Excel. Uh, just that's awesome. Whenever you, you know, have a bunch of data dumped to a table that you wanna share with other people, it's, you know, just export it to Excel, send it to your manager, send it to your coworkers, whoever, right? And just, then they have the data in a nice, easy format. They can filter it and, and do whatever they want with it, right? So import Excel is awesome. What is your favorite part of AI? Like favorite thing it, it might help you do or you look forward to in the future or you're concerned with, I guess, favorite or least favorite? Uh, sure. So I haven't played a whole bunch with the AI APIs. Um, like I know there's, uh, I think is it, there's the, the PowerShell module for- Yeah, PowerShell for, AI. PowerShell AI, thank you. Yeah. Um, I haven't played around with that yet, but what I have used is Copilot in Visual Studio Code and Visual Studio. And so um, that is 100% worth the price in my opinion. It makes you much more productive uh, as a developer writing code, not even as a developer, me writing blog posts. I write them in Markdown in Visual Studio Code uh, and writing my tips for the PowerShell tips module. It'll often just auto-complete your sentences for you. If you go to type up like some example code, it knows what you want to write. It just fills it all in. 
Um, of course, you can't rely on it 100%. You still need to look over what it wrote, correct some things. Um, but lots of times it'll like word things better than I was thinking of wording them for my blog post or for a tip, right? Um, and you do have to be careful too. It generates URLs that a lot of the time aren't real. They don't actually work. <laughs> um, so you got to be careful there as well. But uh, yeah. Okay, that's good. Did you see the new feature for quick rename using GitHub Copilot in Visual Studio? It's like a way to suggest different names for your classes and things like that to kind of make it more uniform or just like a little pop-up you can click. I saw the tweets about it before. Is it released now? Because I saw the tweets about it that it was coming and then that was the last I heard about it. I just saw a blog post. I don't have it up right now, but maybe by the time this is live, it'll actually be up. I know um, another interesting one is the committing committing in VS Code where it'll suggest your commit message for you. Um, yeah, so that one looks interesting as well. Um, yeah. What is the number one tip you would give to someone just starting out in PowerShell, no developer background? Ooh, that's tough because my other talk I submitted to Summit that did not get accepted was PowerShell for the C sharp developer. So I would have been oh. I would have stuff ready for that question. Uh, oh, well, let's let's pivot to that. Developers <laughs> who are wanting to take better advantage of PowerShell. Um, well, well, we've already talked about it a little bit, right? Like if you come from the .NET background, you can utilize .NET in your PowerShell, um, which is super fantastic. So if you're stuck, you know, just fall back to what you already know. Um, but I, I want to go back to your original question. So for a non-developer coming into using PowerShell is like, I'd probably say just read the online help modules or like, don't be afraid to go look at the help. The online help is awesome. Um, Microsoft has done a really good job. And if you find, you know, if, if you find a commandlet that you're not sure what the parameters are or whatnot, just do a quick Google for it. There's going to be a help page for it. You can do get help in the console. I personally like going to the web page just because that's me. It's always up to date information. Uh, if you find something's wrong or missing there, it's all open source on GitHub. You can open a pull request to update the docs, right? Uh, that type of thing. And but just like learning any language, though, I would probably say find a few tutorials and go through them because it's hard to know what you don't know. Like you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, so you don't know to Google for it. You don't know that this command exists. And so that's when uh, just going through some tutorials uh, for learning PowerShell. I don't have any particularly in mind that I could call out, but. Um, Lots of yeah. blogs out there. Douse.dev yeah. has a weekly listing of a whole bunch of great blogs and projects that are often a good starting place. <clears throat> but I think that finding out the resources that are going to work well for you on your journey, get started at learn.microsoft. Maybe you're a book person. Maybe you find a blogger who you really vibe with and you love what they write. You kind of follow their journey and start to implement some of it. Um, whatever the case may be, just kind of find what works for you and don't give up. Just one step at a time. Especially if you're new completely, things can feel a little overwhelming. If you're looking and copying, pasting online code, that uses the pipeline and connects all these commands and has weird variable names. But uh, it'll all make sense one day if you stick with it. And yeah, for you mentioned books. I didn't even think, but PowerShell in a month of lunches, that's like a very commonly uh, uh, yeah, recommended. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That is a great book. Uh, definitely helped me in my journey. Yeah, there's a new edition as well. So exciting stuff. Now, 
Dan, thank you for answering those questions. I know I put you on the spot. I know you said you were nervous for the podcast, and then I did that to you. So uh, definitely, I'm not the nicest guy. But you know what? When it comes to shilling, I'm really quite thrilling. So if you're listening to this, please leave us a like, comment, and subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review and say something nice. That'd be great. You can send feedback to PowerShell at pdq.com, and I will read it. And if you suggest and plug your own module, I'll plug it on the podcast. Happy to do that. I should have said that earlier, so we could have been highlighting this tips module months ago. But here we are. Don't forget to check out the tips module. And if you want to join the inner circle, did you know we have a PowerShell scripting channel in the PDQ Discord? You can find me there every day. Discord.gg slash PDQ, if you want to find us there. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. It is such a pleasure getting to speak with you and meet you for the first time. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you, maybe at Summit, maybe shortly after, and tap in with you again and see how the whole process was for you. Um, if this is your first time hearing about Dan, reach out to him, follow him online. He has a lot of great insights, and he is an appreciated member of this community. Dan, people like you, where can they find you on this internet? Yes, awesome. Thank you. Um, you can find me on Twitter or X. It's just at DeadlyDog. I'm also on Mastodon at hackyderm.io slash DeadlyDog. Uh, or the best place is just actually go to my blog, blog.danskingdom.com. It has all my socials, my email, everything is on there as well. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. This has been very surreal. Like I said, I've listened to every single episode. And so it's uh, like a, a mini dream come true, I'll say, uh, awesome. to, be on, to be on here with you. Well, next time we speak, I'm going to ask you where you came up with the name Deadly Dog. Don't tell me now. I'm still very curious. I didn't get to ask it. Next time we chat, I will find out the origins of that online moniker. Dan, great meeting you. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a safe ride if you're driving. Enjoy your work day if you're working. Enjoy your weekend if you're on the weekend. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast. The PowerShell Podcast is a PDQ production, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.